everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today and as always with my friend and business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Say hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. <laughs> One Nation Under Whiskey is a podcast that encompasses everything that, that we as a company do. And Jason, if you'd be so kind, would you let people know what it is that we do? Yes, we are the proud owners of an independent bottling company called Single Cast Nation. We also lead VIP whiskey tours of Scotland called Whiskey Geek Tours. And we run a festival, a whiskey festival to be specific, across three cities, New York, Chicago and Seattle called Whiskey Jubilee. Nice and concise. Thank you. You're welcome. With One Nation Under Whiskey, uh, with this podcast, we'll have a few different segments we will try to have an interview uh, with with each podcast. Uh, can't guarantee it, but we'll definitely try that. And those interviews, uh, we really want to focus on things that are near and dear to us. And, and topmost on that is going to be independent bottling. So hopefully we'll be talking to a lot of independent bottlers. Um, we'll also have a, a segment that we'll put toward the end of the podcast called Misconceptions, which there are common ones out there and we love talking about them um and sure we'll want to keep listeners up to date with latest news on what's going on single cast nation whiskey geek tours whiskey jubilee worlds cool so speaking of interviews uh we're actually lucky enough to record one uh just a little bit ago Uh, jason and i went out to scotland to well the main reason we went to Scotland <laughs> just, was just to just to conduct one twenty-minute interview. That's exactly <laughs> why we went to Scotland. That's the type of life we live. And and you know what? We only got seventeen minutes. We only got seventeen. That's okay. We're going to go back again. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll go back and get that missing three minutes. Um, so we were out in Scotland uh, doing what we what we enjoy, and that is um, collecting cask samples, seeking them out. One of the things we learned early on running an independent bottling company was that to conduct any kind of business and to do it in a fashion uh, that is, shall I say, quick, you kind of need to be out in Scotland. The old moving at the speed of Scotland. (laughs) In person, over pints, in a pub, over lunch, over dinner, lots and lots and lots of decisions get made very, very quickly. Then we fly home to the United States, where I make my home, and um, yeah, things slow way down again. So moving at the speed of Scotland. <laughs> so while Jason and I were out in Scotland um, collecting cask samples, and we we collected a bunch, we'll talk about them at a later time. We don't need to discuss them today. Uh, but we had visited with David Sturk of Creative Whiskey Company. And if you're not familiar with David um, or Creative Whiskey Company, you may be familiar with his independent bottling line called the Exclusive Malts, which has been coming to the U.S. for three years now or so. Uh, Ballpark, yeah. Yeah, around there. Uh, We were with David. He was celebrating his uh, 12-year anniversary of being an independent bottler. And it was was quite the to-do. After that, after that shindig, we got to sit down with David, and we wanted to ask him a few things. But first off, we started with, 
How did you get started? What got you into this business? So, Jason, unless you have anything to add to that, um, why don't we move over to the tape? I'd love to hear from David. A love of whiskey got me where I am, and a necessity to stay within the industry sort of drove me into being an independent bottler. So um, I had worked for other independent bottlers and didn't really see myself uh, traveling all day, every day, like all the great brand ambassadors do. So what else would I do? Well, I'll, um, I'll set up as a, an independent bottler. Coincided with still one of the best casts I've ever bottled, which was a Strathyla, 1969, 35-year-old, first filled sherry. I'm still hunting down bottles, if anybody's got one. Hmm. Um, and 12 years later, here I am, pretty much. Yeah, I, it, uh, most of it, though, was from an absolute love of Scotch and Scotland and Scottish people um, driving me uh, to, to, to live here and work here and be part of what is one of the best industries in the world. One of the things that you and I talk about at our tastings, Joshua, is Scotland having a very rich tradition of independent bottling. Uh, there's a lot of people come to our tastings who think in, you know, independent bottling has been on the scene for just a few years, and you know, David certainly covers that uh, in our conversation with him. But um, here you've got Cadenheads with a history dating back to the middle of the 19th century. Uh, then you've got David Sturt, you know, Creative Whiskey, 12 years in, you and I, uh, 2011. And so it's, how do, you, how do you establish that? How do you make a name for yourself when you're selecting casts and trying to get people to purchase them? And one of the things that you and I had was we started out as whiskey bloggers, as, as we often joke, we started out as uh, whiskey geeks with access to the internet. Hmm. And we started at a time when, when there weren't a lot of people doing that. And People were reading our reviews. They were buying whiskey at their local retailer based on our recommendations. You and I took that responsibility very seriously. Uh, I can I can guarantee you that I never once steered someone towards a whiskey uh, because I thought it would lead to me getting more free whiskey only because I thought it was top quality stuff. Sure. So when you and I came out of the gate, here we've got people saying, oh, I, I know these guys. I, I know their palates. I understand them. Uh, but it's still hard to build that reputation that you go from someone else's selections onto your own will people still trust you will people still drink your stuff and so that was one of the questions we had for david for him coming from cadenheads coming from douglas lang how did he go about building his reputation so here's what david had to say about that i would say having a sufficient array of ages of whiskey um, was very difficult and trying to impress upon people that I was capable of choosing cask. I was quite lucky in that my previous work had already brought me to the attention of certain markets. So I hit the ground running in two of the biggest whiskey markets, which were German and Japan, um, and didn't need to necessarily explain who I was, even though I've still never been to Japan. <laughs> uh, but in other markets, you know, who, who am I? Who is my company? Why you call creative? Who's David Sterk? All that kind of stuff. Um, I did have to get myself out a bit and impress upon people that uh, I was capable of selecting good casks um, more often than not. 
So they were the they were the major hurdles. I will say for any independent bottler, though, the biggest hurdles is time and money. They're the two most important things. If you haven't got any money, don't become an independent bottler. If you haven't got any time, you're going to struggle. And it took me seven years um, for those two things to come into place, time and money, because it, it, anybody can go out and buy a 35-year-old whiskey and sell it. That's easy peasy. But you go out and buy a four-year-old whiskey, that's pretty hard. So if you have the time to wait for that four-year-old to turn into a spectacular seven-year-old, or the money to buy the 35-year-olds in the meantime to wait for those other whiskeys. Um, I think I meet a lot of people who think, oh, it'd be great to be an independent model. It must be really easy. Well, it is to get one or two good casks, but to have an array, to have a selection, you can't keep bottling the same whiskey day in, day out. Otherwise, uh, you might as well try and buy, buy the brand and do the whole thing yourself. So they're, they're the biggest hurdles. One of the things that I enjoyed uh, in our discussions with David and this one was kind of a, a surprise to me. Um, we discussed what some of our favorite casks were. And that can be a difficult thing, especially when you're someone like him. 12 years in the business, he's bottled close to 1,000 casks now. Uh, yeah, that was his number. Yep. Yeah. Um, 700 or so of them under his own label. He, he bottles for other people as well. Um, so let's just call it 700. At 700 casks, how do you select a favorite? And how is it not your first one, right? How isn't it that 1969 Strathyla? And 68? Is it 68? I think it's 69. It says 68 on my tasting sheet. Then it must be 68. Look at that. <laughs> I assume you'll leave this in. <laughs> I am going to leave this in. Oh, no. Oh, oh it's 69. Oh, no. Hatton for the win. Boom. Oh, no. Goal. Is that, uh, was that a goal? Did I just score a goal? You, you scored a goal in the basket. <laughs> now we'll see what the Russian judge scores you. Yeah, the Ben Nevis was 1968. There you go. There you go. So, you know, <laughs> so so how do you how do you not call your first one your favorite? And I, and I get back to thinking of of what our favorites were. Um, you know, our first whiskey being that Aaron, 12-year-old, eight years in bourbon, four years in Pinot Noir, which was stunning. People loved it. No one had, had really tasted a whiskey like that before because an extra-long maturation such as that, for the most part, didn't exist. Um, but along... Just, the, oh, go ahead. Just, just very quickly to butt in there, Joshua, one of the things that we're always talking about with people. We maybe haven't said it in, in a few years um, as we're as we're discussing now, building a reputation. We're not going back to the origin story quite as much. Um, but one of the things that we used to say at our tastings to let people know, we came about having the company because we knew Aaron had that those Pinot Noir casks in yeah. their warehouse. Yeah. Um, if you want to talk about a very special whiskey to us, it's knowing that we started our company because of one cask, and now here we are with all the very, you know, disparate things that we do, all yeah. in whiskey, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, that I, I think that's a that's an excellent and fair point. Um, having said that, as much as I loved that, it's not my favorite. And it's up there, though. It, no, it, it it's up there, but I I have, it may not be my favorite, but I've poured a little bit of 
perhaps my top two whiskeys of all the whiskeys we've bottled. And in my glass right now, I've got a little of our um, Amra five-year-old, if you remember that. That was a fantastic bottling. Very, yeah, very honored that we got to do that. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't our first non-Scotch whiskey uh, to bottle. We'd bottled some American whiskeys, but this was our first uh, world whiskey, uh, if you were, uh, that we that we've done, and it's it's right up there. So. With that in mind, and this is a five-year-old, so with that in mind, it struck me to hear what David had to say could have been one of his favorites. These whiskeys that we bottle, um, you know, it's the old joke. They're a bit like children. You're not allowed a favorite, but you know you do. Uh, <laughs> so I believe we have bottled now in 12 years just over a 1,000 casks. Um, in my own packaging, something like 740 and there are ones that definitely stand out as being, and it's a personal thing, so you mustn't ever take this and think that's the one I need to find, but superior, certain whiskeys. And the first one definitely stands out. Um, I happened to get married the same year I started the business, and I used that whiskey as my wedding bottle. I gave all my family one with a wedding label. I still have it. Um, I'm not sure when I'm keeping it to drink, maybe 50th wedding anniversary or something, if I live that long. Um, but that, that stands out the most. And it was that, that butt of Strathyla that told me, if other people are rejecting this and you know it's an absolute zinger home run, uh, perhaps it's time for you to take your knowledge and, and, and do this on your own. But through, through the 12 years, some of the ones that I'm most proud of, and I think it goes back to sort of Josh's first question, are some of the younger whiskies I've bottled. I did a Bunahab in 2005 that was four years old. Four-year-old whiskey, still the youngest I've ever bottled. And I, I have a bottle of it to open at a special occasion. I can't bring myself to open it because it's that good. And it's only four years old. And the resistance I had to, to purchase that whiskey from people... Uh, in the UK mainly, uh, who felt that four years old was not an age for a whiskey. You know, you can't drink whiskey at four years old. It's got to be 12 years plus. It's got to be 15. You know, somebody told me it's only good at 18. All these misconceptions again of, uh, of or ideals. Uh, recently, we bottled a 2009 Abela that was seven years old. Um, had been in European oak, which is quite a rare occurrence, uh, like drinking liquid chocolate. Um, so these younger whiskeys... Um, which maybe coincide with a part of my personality that, that I like to sort of tell everybody, which is they're affordable. They're cheap, shall we say. They're not stupidly expensive. And in the 12 years, I've tried my hardest to be priced accordingly. And uh, I come from the approach as a drinker, not a collector. Not that there's anything wrong with collecting. I have, I have a collection. But the, the, some of the younger ones that I've bottled really stand out for being whiskeys that you could buy and drink on a Friday with friends and not hit your bank account, not have to pluck up the courage to tell somebody you bought it, that kind of thing. So th those kind of whiskeys definitely stand out. One of the other things that we discussed with David was that, you know, even though he's 12 years into this business, he is running up against various roadblocks. And so he shares some of the roadblocks that he's run into along the way. But then he talks about some ones that he's experiencing just now. So let's, uh, let's hear what he had to say. With, with any growth comes challenge. And we have outgrown our current facilities. 
Um, it's funny, we're, we're now in our third sort of facilities, if you will, which are warehouses and space. And each time you move, you think, well, this will do me long enough. And then, of course, you outgrow that pretty quick. And the, the biggest struggle that we have now is uh, time is only relevant if you are looking after your own casks. Um, if you've got a, bad a good whiskey and a bad cask, or a bad whiskey and a bad cask, doesn't matter which way around it is, and you can't do anything to that whiskey, it remains a bad whiskey and a bad cask. You need your own warehouse space to monitor, to change, to re-rack, to get rid of. Um, let's not forget that, because a lot of people don't realize um, the vast majority of whiskey that I see year in, year out, no one else sees from me. It doesn't appear in my packaging. Um, the vast majority, 80%. It goes goes somewhere else. Uh, so you need you need I need my speed bump at the moment is to have better facilities to bring in more casks. Um, but it's something we are working on, and uh, we could jump tenfold in our ability to have casks on site. That will mean ten times as much options to pick from when we're picking our bottlings. And uh, it goes back to what I said before: time and money. So certainly those uh, th those are the speed bumps. I would say coupled with that is the demand at the moment is for older whiskey. And the shortage at the moment is older whiskey. Mm -hmm. So um, if, if you have built up a reputation selling 30 to 40-year-old whiskies, good luck in the next 10 or 15 years because, uh, fun enough, they're not making them anymore. <laughs> um, now is the time to get back to what really was the core of malt whiskey world, and that was sort of the 8 to 12-year-old stuff. But... That has its own challenges that most 8 to 12-year-olds are um, in the consumer's eye inferior, not, not good enough, not old enough, not enough wood interaction. So that brings its own challenges. But, um, yeah, they're, they're the speed bumps at the moment. So thanks to David for sitting down with us and covering the history, how he got started, how to build that reputation along the way, and, and some favorite casts that he's bottled. We'll hear from David a little later in the podcast when we have our very first segment of Whiskey Misconceptions. <laughs> Uh, before we press along here, I did want to mention you've got that lovely amaret in your glass. Yes. Um, I'm sitting here um, with some Glen Murray 12-year-old in our glass. It's funny that you should bring up the Aaron 12-year-old um, that, that we did a moment ago, the eight years in bourbon and the four years in Pinot Noir. Our brand spanking new Glen Murray is really the first time we've returned to that type of maturation. Uh, here's a Glen Murray that we've been following for four years. At the time we were first introduced to it, it had spent six years in First Fill Bourbon, and at that point, two years in First Fill Madeira. It was a very, very uh, good cask of whiskey. wasn't quite there yet. I didn't think some of the fruit notes had fully uh, played out in it, fully developed. Mm -hmm. And so we watched it. We, we checked in with it year in, year out. Glenn Murray held it for us, allowed us to keep dipping in and out of it, uh, which is definitely a perk of the, the job. <laughs> and, uh, and and here we were. By the end of last year, it had been six full years in First Fill Bourbon and six full years in First Fill Madeira. And we thought it was ready. Um, it had some nice bourbon sweetness to it. It had some nice Madeira uh, fruit to it. Uh, really complemented one another. And so here we go. You know, there's that lovely cask of Aaron that kicked it off for us. And now we finally return to something uh, that helped a style of maturation that helped us get our foot in the door. So cheers with my Glen Murray 12 to your Amrut 5. Cheers, buddy. 
Cheers, cheers to our first podcast of many. Mm-mm-mm. Down the hatch. Down the hatch it goes. So let's move on to our news segment of the podcast. Maybe we'll have some sort of a flashy news, news, news kind of a thing. What do you think? Yeah. Real ticker that nobody knows anything about. Fax machines in the background. Oh, maybe that kid. Extra, extra, read all about it. <laughs> and then <laughs> whispers of a shoeshine boy. Ah, oh, gee, well, I up on the street over at uh, Bartholomew Street. I heard that. They took my thumbs. Or we could just do this every week. <laughs> I think we will do this. <laughs> so, um, so news. What, what's happening with with us right now? Um, so, I think one of the things that's keeping us busy at the moment, Joshua Hatton, is Whiskey Jubilee Seattle, which is coming up on March second in that fine city, at within Soto, just a couple of buildings down from Westland Distillery, um, held from seven till ten at night. One of the things that I might just want to throw in is people always ask us, oh, you're on a weeknight. What's that all about? Oh, one of the things that got us started in New York City was having a whiskey festival that didn't clash with Shabbat. And that's something that means a lot to us. It's something that means a lot to people who follow us and people who attend our festival. So Thursday, we'll try to keep Thursday consistent across the United States as we've expanded the festival. Sometimes we've been on a Tuesday. I can see where a Tuesday's a little rough. But a Thursday, that's a great start to the weekend right there. So March 2nd, coming up. Uh, what do we have? About 200 different whiskies in the room. Um, we'll have a very, very excellent kosher buffet uh, put together by Leah's Catering. Mm-hmm. I've, is that the name? It's Leah Cooks Kosher. And <laughs> yes, I, it's a great name. And... Her food is absolutely fantastic. People would not, could not say enough good things about her food. And and one of the things that I want to point out, though, because, Jason, you're, you're just throwing around words such as Shabbat and kosher as if that means something to everybody. And uh, so one of the things that, that I think needs to be said is that this is the Whiskey Jubilee and that our event is a whiskey event for whiskey nerds, for whiskey lovers, connoisseurs, for people who are just interested in finding out more about whiskey. And it just so happens that our, that our food is always kosher catered, um, so that our kosher keeping friends, uh, can, can eat there comfortably. And so the, so it's whiskey Jubilee, the Jubilee is sort of a nod to, to people to let them know that, the event will not be held on the Jewish Sabbath, also known as Shabbat, so not on a Friday night. And then we have a, uh, uh, a kosher caterer that always uh, joins us. But we focus first and foremost on the whiskeys. And you're right, we'll have uh, about 200, 250 whiskeys. And we should have, I guarantee there's going to be some exhibitors that'll have gems under their tables. So if, if you're a good boy and girl or a good boy or girl, <laughs> uh, you may get uh, a little special something being poured from underneath the table. And, uh, yeah, tickets are $95. So $95 for three hours of access to 250-plus whiskeys, magnificent kosher buffet, 
uh, and a free whiskey nosing glass to go along with it. It's perhaps the the cheapest night out if you want to try a bunch of whiskeys. It certainly is. It will not leave you wanting for more. You'll be incredibly sated on that night. Yeah. So that's a big focus for us. Uh, there's something else that we've got up our sleeves. Do you want to speak to that, Joshua? Yes. If you're listening to this podcast, you are either a member of Single Cast Nation or you have heard of Single Cast Nation in some way, shape, or form, or perhaps the Whiskey Jubilee. If you know Single Cast Nation, you'll know that our traditional platform has been we bottle whiskey and we sell it to members of Single Cast Nation through our online portal. And then we have a retailer who obviously can legally um, ship that to your doorstep. But that's been our platform uh, from 2011 until December 31st, 2016. Now, we will continue to have an online platform bottling single casks specifically for members of Single Cast Nation, but we have expanded now into a retail line. And so coming in around eight... Yeah, go ahead. Just quickly to jump in there, just before you start giving the markets and timeline, uh, just to let people know what they can expect to see, uh, we have five single casks. We have single cask Gervin, which is 10 years old, uh, a grain distillery that's near and dear to my heart very close to where I was born and raised in the southwest of Scotland. Uh, very excited to see that come in. And then we've got eight-year-old Glen Talkers, uh, eight-year-old Glen Rothis, and eight-year-old Ardmore coming in. So a little peaty treat on the back end of that one. And I don't know if it's speaking out of school to say this, Joshua, but that Ardmore, we believe, we believe. Was, matured, was matured in a Lafroy cask. Is that okay to say that? Are we okay with that? Well, I I, th- I think it's fair to say that we believe that. <laughs> and, I like that little wink to the legal department. <laughs> Here's why we think that. Um, when you taste this Ardmore, the peatiness on it is that of an Isla peat. If you're familiar with Ardmore, you'll know that they when they're peated barley is is it's peated using highland peat not isla peat and this is undoubtedly coastal salty uh you know some medicinal quality to it that smoked barbecue smoked barbecue sure all these things that that you know you've come to know and love about isla and so we said hmm, that's kind of interesting and it wasn't a few weeks later uh, where we started seeing some cask lists go around, and there was a bunch of Ardmore casks on some of these lists where it specifically stated matured in an ex Lefroig cask. So we're putting two and two together, and two and two may not equal four in this particular case, but it sure tastes like four. Well, and I should double-check this before I commit it to a podcast, but... Maybe this is an alternative fact that I'm spouting, but <laughs> didn't Art didn't Ardmore release a, an OB that was in Lefroig? Didn't that just happen towards the end of last year? Was I in a Lefroig fused haze? Yeah, it, that may be an alternative fact you have there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what I will say is, you know, obviously Beam Suntory owns both Lefroig and Ardmore. And it would, uh, from a fiscal standpoint, would behoove them 
to share casks when when and if at all possible. So it, it would make sense that they are going to extra mature or mature from the very beginning some of their whiskeys and Lafroy casks. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a crack. I remember you and I talking about the saltiness on it when we were selecting it. So, yeah, really proud to stand by that. <laughs> and then and then one final, uh, well, the fifth cask that's coming out for general retail is a Ben Nevis 20-year-old, which is a distillery near and dear t- to your heart and one that I'm quietly coming around to and uh, starting to sample some very good casks from there. Well, there's, there's no need to quietly come around to this one. Jason, it's 20 years in a sherry puncheon, and it is absolutely magnificent and fruity and densely flavored and just one you can sit down with for a while. I'm, I'm in love with it. It is the weighty, the weightiness of it is is quite remarkable. So yeah, happy to share that. So that's the five general release. Do you want to speak about the markets, and then we can add in one other little yeah, sure detail. So the markets that those five will go in are California, Illinois. This is not alphabetical, by the way. Uh, (laughs) California, Illinois, Connecticut. See what I mean? New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. Did I cover them all? I have no idea. I was not listening. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Some co-host you are. <laughs> so now I didn't know that was part of the gig. I had to listen to you. That's not what I signed up for. <laughs> so now I'm going to count on my fingers. <laughs> and I will listen. Oh, there you go. So California, Illinois, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. There you go. Six. And uh, so all five of those whiskeys will be in those markets, and that'll be sometime uh, in, in April, but, or however, but there's uh, one other surprise. There's one other surprise. There's always a surprise. Uh, we bottled a second Ben Nevis cask, but this one is quite different. Uh, this one is an eight year old in a first fill Oloroso sherry, butt, and through our distributor in New York who handles the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut markets, um, we bottled this for them as an exclusive. So if you are in any of those states, uh, you're lucky to, uh, to have access to that. And there's a little over 600 bottles in that butt. Um, and that is just a massive, massive, massive whiskey. 64.8% alcohol. That is large. That is large and in charge, I might add. That's what, that's what I like to hear. <laughs> um, is there any other news to add? I was just thinking to myself that so? here we here I am tasting this Glen Murray twelve year old, mm-hmm. and it has a partner. We have, as I look behind me, a Lafroy five year old that was released at the same time. And mm-hmm. so, uh, head along to singlecastnation.com, have a look uh, under our bottling list, and you'll see our two January releases: uh, Glen Murray twelve. As discussed earlier in this podcast, six years Firstville Bourbon, six years Firstville Madeira, and a five-year-old Laphroaig. That was all five years in refill bourbon. But as somebody emailed us just the other day, it is quite dark for a refill. Really dark. Um, Really quite dark. And with some nice bourbon flavors thrown in there for good measure. Um, but still a Laphroaig shining through. So, yeah, I, I figured that was a newsworthy addition. What do you think, Joshua? I think that was good. And 
So as we exit this segment, beep 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 extra extra. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think we're having too much fun. Too much. Too much whiskey. <laughs> uh, so I think it's probably good to move on to our misconceptions segment of of this podcast. Now this is a feature that, or this is something that we will feature on uh, hopefully every one of our podcast because Jason is as you'll know you know we go out on the road all the time doing many seminars uh, whether it's at a seminar um, or through email or, or what have you we often get asked questions or, or we're offered up what someone deems to be a fact about whiskey and, and something about the whiskey industry and you think to yourself self why are they thinking that? Where is that information coming from? And quite often it's, it's coming from, you know, it, it makes sense that they would think that or it would make sense that they don't understand it. Uh, so it's always good to, to hear about these and smash some misconceptions. So we asked David, if David Stirk, that is, if he had any misconceptions that, that he'd like to... Um, uh, dispel. What, dispel. Thank you. Oh, gosh, you're so good with words. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and here's what he had to say. I think the first great misconception is that this is a new thing. That independent bottling has only sprung about because of the, the, the growth in malt whiskey. And I take great delight in reminding people that uh, Johnny Walker started as a retailer. Uh, Shivas Brothers started as a retailer. They would go to their local distilleries and they would buy their whiskey and they would sell them in their shop. They were the first independent bottlers. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years of history of independent bottling. In fact, my first uh, uh, company I worked for as an independent bottler, Caden, is celebrating 175 years this year. So don't tell me this is a brand new thing. and that's more probably more of a consumer-driven myth sure. that, uh, in, in the same way, finishing casks is a brand new thing. Um, sorry, it isn't. It's it's pretty old. Um, so yeah, that's one misconception. I think another uh, sad misconception is that we all bottle our own casks by hand, and we have our own warehouses. There are there aren't actually that many companies that actually bottle their own whiskey. Most are bottled in corporate bottling houses, out of sight, out of hand. I, I believe. When I worked for Whiskey Magazine, the term armchair bottler was used. A bit disparaging. But there is a myth that there are all these lovely little warehouses scattered all over Scotland with hundreds of unique casks, um, which probably comes to another myth of this discovered cask, this idea that we went to the corner of the warehouse and found a cask that we'd forgotten about. Um, We have pretty tight guidelines and rules and constraints on how we look after our barrels and casks. And if you don't know every single one of them, you're in trouble with the authorities. So uh, there is no discovered barrel. There is, of course, the the one that might have had a a greater cask interaction and you pull it open and it comes out slightly green because of one reason or another and things like that. Um, So that's uh, another bit of a misconception with uh, with independent bottlers. But I I would say the greatest misconception is the idea that we are clambering over casks with a torch and a bung extractor and a glass in warehouses all over Scotland looking for that gem. You know, the doors are open and in we go and we're, you know, we have free uh, free will of the place, carte blanche, pick whatever you want, and we discover this thing and we let the people know. I'm afraid that doesn't happen. Um, 
again, we have pretty strict regulations that mean you can't just roll up to somebody's warehouse and go uh, rocking and rolling. Um, so yeah, sadly, that's not the way it works. You have to put in a request for a sample. Sample has to get drawn. Sometimes duty's paid. It gets sent to you. It's a pretty uh, standard thing. There's no uh, rolling around these warehouses. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, as I'm listening to David talk there, um, it really strikes me that the myth of casks maturing quietly in a dark corner of a warehouse, I think it really gains a foothold because it's something we want to be true. Um, I know when you and I are wandering around warehouses, pulling bungs, tasting whiskey from the cask, hashtag humble brag, it's, it, it's the type of thing that we, we see barcodes, right? We used to see painted cask ends, and that would denote the, the fill, right? It would denote, was it sherry, was it bourbon? But now there's a barcode on the end, and barcodes aren't particularly sexy, um, but it really speaks to the distillery manager, knows what's in the warehouse, the accounting department knows what's there, um, Her Majesty's tax uh, civil servants know what's there. Yeah. The, the, the thought of something just slipping through the cracks really doesn't make a lot of sense. But boy, if it doesn't just speak to our whiskey hearts and what we fervently hope and wish was true uh, in a warehouse. Yeah, you, you know, after learning that, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie, I was a bit gutted to know that you know there there isn't that magnificent cast hiding, you know some someone had accidentally back in 1974 left their raincoat over some <laughs> cask of Macallan and you, you know all someone found it and my you know it's magnificent uh, it it doesn't exist and not not to knock the big companies that that say we uncovered this 50 year old and, and wow, but it, it, it doesn't happen. And, uh, that 50 year old may be magnificent whiskey, but, um, don't be fooled by marketing. I'll tell you one thing that I did bump into though. Um, and I, I know the distillery managers and I believe this to be true was through it old Pulteney. Uh, it would have been maybe back in the late eighties, maybe early nineties, if memory serves, they got a whole, load of empty casks and from from Isla and they designated them for one particular purpose and everybody knew exactly what was happening and then a, a few months go by a year goes by and they open up some of the new make spirit to give it a try and lo and behold it's in an Isla cask and it was never ever meant to be in an Isla cask and I remember getting a chance to bottle that uh, just in the visitor shop there as a 14 year old the whiskey was 14 i was not bottling whiskey when i was 14 um but but you you sometimes hear those types of stories happening where somebody says oh yeah we yeah we yeah we accidentally put it into the wrong cask and then it got its barcode or then it's got its cask end or what have you but uh but it, it's it's again it's fun to think of little accidents like that was it bob ross who always said there are no mistakes. There are only happy little accidents. I like to think of happy little accidents happening around Scotland's whiskey warehouses and not just around the time of the Christmas party. <laughs> so, Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I went uh, off piece. <laughs> that's quite all right. So I, I've got one little thing to add. And this this isn't uh, a mis... Well, it's definitely a misconception. 
but it, it goes to show how much work we as independent bottlers and we as the whiskey industry have 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 to how much work we have to do and how how far we have to go with our messaging. Uh, I was in a shop just a few days ago, and someone was talking to me about a bottle of imitation Macallan that they saw. Said, imitation Macallan? Yeah. I said, said, what do you mean imitation Macallan? And so my first thought was maybe it's that McClellan's, uh-huh, you yeah. know, those McClellan's things. And I said, is it like McClellan's blend? I said, no, no, no. No, they said it said spay malt on it and it had a red ribbon and, and it said Macallan, but it wasn't a Macallan. And I said, whoa, wait. So said, that's an independently bottled Macallan. <laughs> and Spay Malt is, you know, it's a very popular line of independently bottled Macallans. And uh, they didn't really get it. And after a little conversation, they finally got it. And But they hadn't heard of what an independent bottler was. And this was after me talking with them. <laughs> And pouring right. independently bottled whiskeys, right? <laughs> You're good at what you do, though, John. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <laughs> that that about sums up our episode for today. Uh, but before we go, I wanted to let everybody know uh, about a new website that we have for this podcast, and that is onenationunderwhiskey.com, and that is whiskey without an E. And uh, if you want to email us, if you have any questions or comments or, or what have you, you can email us at questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. And uh, should we read your email online, we would be pleased to, uh, to send you a, a thank you sample from one of our Single Cast Nation bottlings. Seems like a fair deal. Send an email, get a question asked, get a sample. Yeah. And we'll just follow up afterwards with... Uh, with questions on how to ship the sample to you, and and there you go. So, uh, Jason, unless you have anything to add, that was us, and I thank you. And I thank the listeners for giving us their time. That was very generous of them, and I hope they'll follow us and check out singlecastnation.com and all the other URLs that we have. Whiskeyjubilee.com and... Uh, yeah, that'll do it. Thanks so much, guys and gals. Really appreciate it. Cheers, L'chaim. Enjoy. <laughs>